0: Welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. This is an online Bible study of the book of Revelation as taught by Pastor Andy Kroll. You can find more resources online at wwwthepulpiteercom backslash revelation. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, open with prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you again for this chance to gather together, and thank you so much for the gift of your word, uh, for the way that you uh, not only challenge us through it, but to comfort us uh, with it, and we just pray, Lord, that you would be present here with us and open our eyes to see um, what you'd have us see and to focus on your son, Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, um, one of the questions that was brought up to me that I'll address um, kind of briefly, but... Uh, it's a question that's, um, that a lot of people have had when reading through uh, the Exodus passages is God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Did that um, make anybody else kind of wonder about that? And, and so the question is, why, why is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Does God want Pharaoh to go against him or, or that sort of thing? Different theological streams would take this differently. Um, there's some theological streams, like Calvinism, that would have no problem with God determining that somebody is going to reject him and go to hell. Um, we are what would be called Wesleyan Arminians, and uh, we would believe that God is always wanting to draw people to himself. Oddly enough, I think the best explanation for this, I actually heard from a Calvinist, who said, um, you need to look at how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What were the things that were happening when, when Pharaoh's heart was being hardened? The plagues. Now, if you, let's say you decide to pick a fight with God, who's going to win? <laughs> and so Pharaoh, in, in in enslaving God's people, which would be seen, Israel in a sense was understood as God's firstborn, sometime, in some sense. In enslaving God's people has chosen to kind of declare war upon God. So God could have, from the beginning, just said, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. But what, what is the goal of the plagues? Is the goal to get to the 10th plague because God's just really aching to kill a son? He's trying to change Pharaoh's heart. So God pours out grace to say, let my people go. How does Pharaoh respond to that grace? His heart gets harder. So God, I would say that God hardens Pharaoh's heart by grace, through grace. It's God's actions of grace, and Pharaoh's response is a hardened heart. Um, Have you ever... We're going to get into this in a little bit, because I think it actually gets into some of the things that the demonic locusts are getting at. Have you ever... um, got into a sin so much you were kind of pot committed and then you're just going to be in it no matter what and it takes something very significant to shake you out of it like you kind of double down on your mistake has anyone ever doubled down on I'm using poker terms I'm not even a poker player but you know what I mean though like, I, I've seen it on the TV sometimes that's, that's why we cut the cord and stuff like that yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and you really have a choice when, when those things happen. Um, are you going to choose to turn to God or turn more into yourself? And Pharaoh's choice kept being to turn into himself, um, which kind of points out the more self-sufficient we think we are, um, the more danger we have of doing that. So One of the things I meant to draw up on screen was a squiggly, like a circle, like we're going in cycles. Like Candy said, you feel like we're getting towards the end, and then it suddenly loops back, and we're back to the beginning of something. And then it'll feel like we get to the end, and we loop back, and there's this stuff going on. Um, One of the things I want to remind you of is on page, I think it's page 23 of your um, book, there's a breakdown of the book of Revelation. And this might make a little more sense now than it used to, or it might not but um sometimes this sort of a uh this is like a map to the book, and sometimes that kind of helps you fit where all the pieces go. so we have the introduction in chapter one, and then in the end you're gonna have a conclusion, and it's, there's letter parts to that and genre parts to that and uh, chapters. 2 and 3, and uh, as he's talking to John, you get the church that's imperfect in the world, and then you're going to get the church that's perfect in glory at the end. And then in the middle, you get these, uh, this series of sevens and these interludes, um, and it, it intensifies as it moves forward. One of the ways you can see that it intensifies is that thrones and theophany worksheet are those things to fill out and so just to kind of look at that page that you have just briefly, it says um, the throne room in, in four or five has flashes of lightning, rumbling, and peals of thunder. If you go to what we read today, in chapter 8, verse 5, it says there's peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So you add something to it. It's the same verbiage, but you add something to it. And then actually if you go further ahead to by the seventh bowl, you find that there's flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a violent earthquake, and huge hailstones. And the way that I encourage you to think of this is it's um, you're coming around back to the same thing again, but it's like the volume's being turned up, or that you're seeing a little bit more to it. It's it's amplifying. There's, uh, oh, Dr. Mulholland said, doing a structure of the book of Revelation is hard because it's like taking a picture of a juggler. You're going to get something in the middle, but you don't get the dynamics of what's going on. There's a lot of themes going through Revelation, and it's hard to kind of just pin it down. But to know a lot of the themes are interacting with, with each other. So again, um, I'll open with the, open, I'll start with the statement of, you know, what if Revelation is not primarily about future predictions, but instead is about how we are to live faithfully now? And again, the sermon went into that, looking at the four horsemen and saying, we are already in a time when there is conquest, warfare, uh, famine, and death. And if that's the case, then we are not to have our hope on, like, governmental systems or, or that sort of thing um, but instead to have our hope on Christ. Like, we're not going to have our safety in this world. Well, why would that matter to the people that in these churches that it was written to? They're in Asia Minor in the first century in the Roman Empire. Where were they tempted to seek their security? Rome, right? And to do that, they had to compromise, didn't they? Like, they had, they had to worship the empire, they had to emperor, they had to... Um, probably sacrificed to some other de- they, had to, they had to give themselves to idolatry they had to compromise to get their safety in the world system um, I think where Revelation challenges you and I is it says um, beware of compromising to find your safety in some world system instead this vision of the four horsemen comes out and you realize that it doesn't take much for conquest, warfare, famine and death to happen and so your safety is not found here. It's found only in Christ alone, in the white rider in, in Revelation 19. So if, uh, we'll get into the seals here. If you remember, or the, the last seal. Remember the sixth seal is getting close to the end and you've got this imagery of everything getting dark and stuff that we just talked about. And it, it, seems, like, uh, it seems like the end is coming, the mountains are shaking, rocks are falling, people are hiding under it. Uh, And and it says, who can stand? And then we have uh, this kind of pause in the action while we see this picture of of the faithful people in in Revelation 7. Um, That's the answer to who can stand. Well, now we're going to pick up and get to uh, where the seventh seal happens. and It's in chapter 8, 1 to 5. And we find out what happens when the Lamb opens the seventh seal. The silence, good. There was a clue right up there in silence, yeah. Silence, which is kind of uh, um, surprising, isn't it? Because you'd expect something big has been building up to this, but silence happens. Um, so where is silence used in Scripture? In Zephaniah 1, seven, it says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. So here we see it connected to a silence before a judgment coming from God. In Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence before him so here's the Lord's presence on earth so there should be silence Zechariah 2:13 be silent all people before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling so it's a sense of God about to act so silence then occurs prior to judgment uh, and so, prior to judgment, there's silence before the Lord, this implies then and we 're kind of expecting this the end is coming in the seal the uh, sixth seal, the end is coming we sense the day of the lord 's coming who can uh, who can be who can stand before the one on the throne and the lamb and their wrath and all this stuff and then, then silence comes, and it seems like okay, this is going to be it this is going to be the the uh, the final judgment or whatever um, and, and also there 's a, a in the Jewish tradition, there was this Understanding of uh, silence, this primeval kind of silence before creation. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because um, a lot of the people receiving this uh, scripture, this book, this letter, um, w- were familiar with the Jewish pool of images that was, that was the art set that they were used to using. And so they would have made this connection to the silence before creation or the silence before judgment. So I'd argue that the silence is, is showing both judgment and new creation. I think I'm solid on this because as you go forward uh, through the book, you're going to find that as this final thing happens, that you're going to get both judgment in the sense of sorting out those who are faithful and those who are not, but also new creation in, in the sense of the new Jerusalem coming. Uh, so, that's, so that's going on. So this seventh seal is, is pointing towards the final judgment, um, and as was brought up earlier, then it feels like, okay, we're here, but then we kick on back to someplace else. Um, and we get into this altar imagery. And, and you see this picture of this in, in eight, I think it's eight 8.5, where it talks about the, the rumblings and peals of thunder and stuff that we just talked about. But along with that, um, if you remember how there's this picture of, of, there's this idea of the angel and there's incense and the saint, the prayers of the saints are going up with the incense. So here's what would happen. There would be, you remember that there's the big altar uh, of burnt offering that was out in front of the temple, a fire going all the time. A priest would go out with a golden censer, scoop up some hot coals, bring it back in, um, in in the morning and in the evening, go before the, the curtain in the temple there was a, the golden altar for the offer of, offering of incense. Put the uh, coals down and then dump a bunch of incense on it, and then all of the smoke would go up and all this sort of stuff. And this would be the offering of incense before the Lord. Well, this happened in the morning and the evening, and it occurred at the same time as prayer times. Okay? So as the people of God are gathering around praying, you get this offering with all this incense and smoke going up before the Lord. So as you can understand... There was this connection there began this, became this connection between the prayers of the saints and the incense going up before the Lord, okay so you've got this kind of connection of that going up. Well, you can see that in revelation, can't you? You've got this you got this uh, it has in mind again, this is if this is the way these folks uh, would have worshipped or would have been familiar with the Jewish folks that they knew worshiping all the time as he goes into these imageries, this imagery. I'll go ahead and read through it here. Another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He has given a great quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. So again, you have incense and the prayers of the saints um, on the golden altar that's before the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What do you suppose... The fire that's being thrown down on earth symbolizes then. What might fire suggest? Cle- okay, there's cleansing, that's certainly part of it, yeah. And cleansing goes along with judgment. Yeah. Um, and this is actually part of where, uh, not this particular verse, but when you hear um, Roman Catholics in purgatory... Purgatory is, is talking about a purging, and, and there's, a, there's a sense of those who are faithful in Christ have to go through this time of, of purging, of kind of like the impurities being burned off. So, um, so you can have judgment and fire and uh, cleansing kind of, kind, of, kind of combined. The question is, if, if the impurities are burned off and only the faithful part of you is left, is there going to be anything left? Um, so anyway... This, uh, this fire is thrown down, and this is symbolic of the judgment that's going on. All right, let me find my spot here. So I'm going to run out of time. You have these interlocking cycles then where it seems like we get to the end of the, of the seals, and then all of a sudden these angels with trumpets show up. Um, the seven trumpets. We'll look at the first four here. Um, the first trumpet has hail, blood, and fire. Now, why did I have you read the section out of Exodus? There were plagues in Exodus that are similar to the things that are going on here, aren't there? So keep that in mind as we go. So Exodus 9, 25, you have hail and fire. Um, and then also, I didn't put it up here, uh, there's, there's blood in this one, and the waters turn to blood in, in Exodus 7. So we've got this... Uh, Going on with the first trumpet, let me find my spot again. The echoes of, of Exodus that are, uh, that are going on here, one of the things I guess I want to uh, get into and point out is um, there's the plagues of Exodus, and so the, the plagues, just to kind of remind us what they are, the waters turned to blood, then you had frogs, the gnats, and flies, death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and death of the firstborn. Okay, those are the plagues of, uh, of the book of Exodus upon Egypt. So you're seeing some of these things again that you're going to find here. Each situation, if you consider the situation for the people in first century Asia Minor, each situation has the people of God. They're being oppressed by a world power. One, they're being oppressed by Egypt. The other, they're being oppressed by Rome. And they're being tempted to Um, give in to idolatry on on each spot. Also, each situation has these these plagues. And the plagues are meant to bring repentance as opposed to wholesale demolition of the enemies of God. Like we talked about in the beginning with uh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Um, what was the purpose of God doing the plagues? The purpose was that if God can turn the water to blood and Pharaoh can say, wow, I messed with the wrong person and can relent and set God's people free, then you don't have to do the other nine. And the whole purpose of it was, was mercy and grace instead of I'm going to just wipe you off the face of the earth. Um, and, and the same thing happens here. We even see hints of it where does God, turn, does God burn the entire earth with this? Are all the trees wiped out? No. So you get the sense of, it's supposed to, and we find out in verse 21, I believe it is, that the purpose of, of the trumpets is to bring repentance from the people so that they can understand that, um, that there's no future in being an enemy of God. Okay, so again, the first trumpet, you get Hail. Blood and fire, um, in that we find hail and fire in Exodus nine, twenty-two to twenty-five, and then the waters to blood in Exodus seven. The second trumpet: there's a mountain that's tossed ablaze into the sea, and then turns it, messes with the waters again. And this is uh, again points back to where you can see. Um, it says in verse 9, a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures died. Well, this points back to the everything turning to blood in, in Exodus. So we're seeing this echo again. Um, the mountain may refer to a kingdom being thrown down. Um, there's scripture in Jeremiah where it's talking in, in that sense that the, a mountain can represent that. Um, the mountain may also be pointing to Mount Vesuvius, That erupted in 79 A.D. and it was uh, a pretty major eruption. So they literally saw half of a mountain blow off. I mean, and and then just the lava come out. And so um, this may be the imagery that's playing with them that these kind of cataclysmic things going on. The third trumpet is you see he sees a star that fell blazing like a torch into the rivers and the springs. And so again the waters are affected. Um, the star is called Wormwood. And uh, in Jeremiah 9.15, Israel is made to drink um, this bitter water, and it's as a judgment because they've chosen um, to follow idols. And so here again we have um, a third of the fresh water is poisoned, and so people had to drink it, and they died. Um, the fallen star is, uh, is a symbol of the fallen angel, and if you read Isaiah 14, 12 to 13, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star of dawn. You've been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. And who do you suppose that fallen star came to be understood as? Satan. Okay? And, and Jesus makes reference to this in the Gospel of Luke, right? He says, I saw you fall, O morning star. And so um, here you get uh, this, this fallen angel, and then the outcome of that is it poisoning the waters and, and that sort of thing. So again, as, as with the Egyptian plagues, this judgment of creation is connected with um, uh, just idolatry turning from God and then the results of that and rebellion that happens even in, in the heavenlies. Also, I think another thing to think about is, is idolatry pollutes um, as you're looking for something that's life giving, and, and as water is to be life giving, then this idolatry and turning from God ends up polluting, and there's, uh, these are the outcomes of it. And I want to get to the end of the fourth trumpet, and then we'll kind of summarize some of the big things that are going on in these first four. The fourth trumpet we have a third of the sun, moon, and stars are struck, a third of the light is gone. Exodus 10, 21 to 23, has the plague of darkness. And again, we already talked about the darkness of the sixth seal. What that meant was, it was the sign of the day of the Lord coming, or of judgment coming. Um, here, it has a third of it is dark. So what, what might that symbolize? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's the judgment's coming, but it's not as. I think in the sixth seal, it's like we're right on the doorstep. Here's like a warning, right? Judgment. It, I kind of thought of you know, when you're in a movie theater for a play and you're getting close to stage, to curtain time, right? What do they do? Dim the lights and put them back up, and that tells you, get to your seat. So it's kind of like that. I, that was the image that came to mind. But I, I think this is. Um, Again, I think this is a way of saying that there are things that are going on that are supposed to draw your attention to the fact that God's judgment is impending and you need to turn to Him. So again, these, these four trumpets, these judgments are supposed to tell us that judgment is coming, you need to turn to God. Also, um, one of the things that darkness does is, without God, you're living in darkness. Without God. And, and we also talked last week about the fact that if you live by a sea and you have a culture of sailors, how do they find their way around? Well, the stars and where the sun comes and sets and all of that stuff. And what happens if that stuff's all messed up? You're incredibly disoriented. And one of the ways to, as I continue to think about this, especially that imagery, there's, there's something about this that what if the ways of God are very different than our ways, as Scripture suggests? The way in which we orient ourselves in our life, what if that's way off from how God would have us do that? Does that sound scriptural? And so the shaking up of the sun and the moons and the stars says that at some point when God's kingdom comes, if we have oriented our lives around the ways of the world, We're not going to know up from down. And again, you see this, I keep going back to the cross and, and thinking of that. Like, if the cross is the victory of God, then that should tell us that maybe we just understand victory differently than God does. Because if the cross and the resurrection of Christ, I mean, there's just something, there's something very different about that than the way we tend to do things. All right, so that darkness. All right, so the, the big idea here that I want to get into, is with the, especially with the first four trumpets. I think the worksheet's going to come later. Yeah. So with the first four trumpets, you notice they're kind of grouped together, and then the next two trumpets are similar. Now with the, with the seals, did you notice that happened as well? What are the first four seals again? the four horsemen and then the next two are grouped together because it's the it's the people that are faithful crying out from under the altar and the people who are rebellious against God crying out from under the rocks so they're kind of attached just like the next two trumpets that are coming are going to be like locusts that are like horses and horses that are like terrifying horses right so you get this connection so they're kind of groups so we have a 4 and a 2 and a 1 and there's a interlude between the two. So already we're seeing this kind of pattern of something that's going on that John's communicating something to us through. Well, the first four trumpets go together in, in that they are they are affecting creation. They're affecting creation. And one of the things that I think that's telling us is is this way of that creation is, this world as we know it, is temporary. Because the things that are being shown here is it's, it's able to fall, it's... Uh, also, um, with, with the sun and the moon and the stars all changing, there's, at some point, the old passes away and things are made new. Um, and so it goes back to what Jesus said when he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth, but instead store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because treasures on earth rust and decay and whatnot. Well, if, if the ways of this world are literally passing away, then we are not to put our faith in the ways of the world. And one of the things that the trumpets show us is our creation is broken and fragile. Um, Dr. Mulholland writes, uh, John is again seeing the effects of the rebellion upon creation and God's judgment as already present, though not yet completed. I want to kind of highlight that because this will get to some of the questions of, so are we supposed to be looking for a time when the trumpets will come? Um... His argument, and I think the thing that makes the most sense to me is in the argument of, of the other commentaries I've read is, is that here we have, um, through a vision, it's saying, you're in the midst of this right now. That there are effects of rebellion upon creation and God's judgment is already present, but it's not completed. We're still waiting for that final day of the Lord. But we already have those, those bits of judgment that whose purpose are to, to draw our eyes back to God, to say, You can't find your security here. Well, the first four trumpets tell us you can't find your security here. But the first four seals told us that as well, didn't they? You can't find your security here. You need to find your security in God. Also, notice that the trumpets are affecting light and the air and the vegetation. And the Sun and the Moon and the stars and the sea creatures and the humans. And we talked a little bit when we talked about um, the sea being the forces of, of chaos and disintegration and stuff. One of the things that's happening here as these judgments come down is it's like decreation. If you think about God creating in Genesis 1, God created and then said, "It is good." Creation is good. Well, what happened? Sin happened. And what's the result of sin? Well, part of the result of sin is we're born into original sin and we are sinners. But what does God say to Adam? Cursed is the ground. Why? Because of you. Because of you. And so, I am utterly convinced that we absolutely underestimate the destructive nature of sin. Like, I believe, and you may think I'm crazy, but I literally believe that as we sin and turn against God, since God put us in this pivotal place in creation, to be stewards and to be God's image bearers in creation, that when we rebelled, we broke things more profoundly than we realize. And I think the trumpet judgments are showing that. Like, this is the result of your sin. Things are broken. Because if you think about it, one-third of the water is bitter. Is there any place where they're in need of clean water? I mean, do we have to wait for the time when people are dying for lack of water? Is that somewhere in the future? It's now. That's why, you know what the caravan kids are doing Wednesday night? They're trying to raise money for cisterns and wells to help people get clean water because right now, that's an issue. That's one of the main things that keeps going on. Um, and so, this is sin leads us back towards decreation. Like, it's, it's this rebellion against God is like a, a jaunt into nothingness. It's, it's going backwards against God's good purposes. Well, that makes sense because sin is rebellion against God. And if God is drawing things towards what is good and right and just... And we rebel against God. We're going the other way. That's what that means. And I know the devil sits on your shoulder and says, God's holding back from you. You won't die if you eat from the tree. He just doesn't want you to have the good stuff, right? Because the devil's temptations now are so different than they were then, right? And he says, you can be like God. Here's the truth. When we are God, everything literally falls apart. Because as we found out in Revelation 4, It's in God. It's because the one on the throne created, and in him we all have our being. Not in ourselves. But the devil likes to sit on our shoulder and say, you can be like God. And Revelation is showing us, and this is what happens. So what do we need to do? We need to turn back to God. We need to turn back to God. Um, So that decreation is a big part of what I want you to think about. And, and that's going on in Exodus as well. In Exodus, God has his rescue plan to save. Not only, it's not just that God loved Abraham above everybody else. God was rescuing creation because we broke it. And so he has this plan with the people of Israel. And what did Egypt do? The answer is they enslaved them, which is working contrary to the ways of God. Why did Egypt enslave them? Because that's what we do, isn't it? That's just what we we do, stuff like that. I don't know if you've been paying attention to human history, but that's just the sort of stuff we do to each other. And so God's drawing this rescue plan forward. Egypt does the human thing and enslaves and empowers and makes wealth off of the back of others. And um, the plagues are one way of saying, if we go this way, creation falls apart. I mean, think of it, it's a, it's a literal attack on, on its creation falling apart. If you get your way, then water doesn't work right. Again, I would argue then, we profoundly underestimate the effects of sin. All right. Um, so creation has fallen from its perfection, and the thirds indicate that it's incomplete. So one way to think of it is, now one-third of all water is not drinkable. And now one-third of this is not working right. It's just showing that creation's profoundly broken. It's not running on all cylinders. What happens in your car if you take one-third of the cylinders and just don't let them fire? It's off. Does it affect the rest of the car? I don't know. I'm not a car guy, so we'll say maybe. Huh? <laughs> it does. All that stuff is interactive. Yeah, Gene. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's reverting back, and I would say also with the thirds, well we're going to get to the thirds when we get to the sheet, okay, and to talk about what the, what's going on, but that Calvary is a way of I, I think that's when we get into the sixth of a sequence, it's pointing more and more towards like the final judgment, um, but we'll get into the thirds um, and compare them to the fourths. Um, so I just want to one of my favorite parts in Romans, it's from Romans 8. I just want to read this to you as I think this is an important part of um, understanding this creation thing. In Romans 8, I'll start with verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. Do you suppose the people who were in uh, the churches in Asia Minor could have heard that? This like directly applies to them, doesn't it? They're tempted to go for comfort and safety and not be persecuted. Um, and, and Paul would say to them, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us. And then he writes, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but the will of one, the one who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be set free from bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God which says that creation itself is currently in its bondage to decay meaning that it's profoundly broken can anybody give me an example besides the clean water thing of creation being broken yeah earthquakes tsunamis natural disasters there was a tornado that went through portland this summer and Blew the roof off of my home church and destroyed a couple others right on the corner. Yeah. So, yeah, these natural disasters that show that something's off. Yeah. And then the way people treat each other, so then that gets into creation's broken and we're broken. Our, we are broken. The first thing that happened when Adam and Eve sinned is they made fig leaves for each other because immediately they started to have to hide things. Pollution, there's another. And again, if we are in a spot, this is why the whole pollution thing, can we just, let's ignore politicians. And as Christians, we need to have a strong stance on what it means to be stewards of God's good creation. Environmentalism is not a democratic issue. It is a Christian issue. Okay? Okay. And if they want to support us in that, awesome. But we shouldn't see ourselves as joining a party, but I wonder if a party would like to support us in what we should be doing. That's why when the Pope visits and does this whole, like, um, uh, talking about stewardship and environmentalism, our press is going back and forth, like, is, is he, like, one of the Democrats or a Republican? We can't figure out what the heck he's a part of. Well, because maybe he's, maybe he's Catholic. Like, maybe the Argentinian Pope does not understand himself in our political categories, maybe. Maybe the universe doesn't revolve around the United States of America. I don't know. Um, and so that's one of the things for us to keep in mind, is our first calling is not to a ticket that we punch in November. Our first calling is to our Lord Jesus Christ. And this story tells us we were made in the image of God, to be God's image bearers to, to creation, which means, yeah, we gotta, we got to watch what we do. And that sort of thing. So, all right. um, The seven trumpets then continue with the fifth trumpet. And we hear the eagle that flies through and says, whoa, 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 to the inhabitants of the earth. I just want to point out again that the inhabitants of the earth, when he says that, that's kind of like technical language, meaning the people who are rebelling against God. Okay. So one of the things Revelation does, and it kind of amazes me each time I go through it, is (laughs) Revelation does not offer room for compromise. There's a line drawn, and you're with the lamb, or you're with the beast. That's how it goes, okay? Um, Which makes sense in the context that it was given. It was given to people that were tempted to compromise, and that were paying for being faithful. Um, So anyway, the woes against the um, inhabitants of the earth, which says that there's something about the next two trumpets that pertain specifically to those who are rebelling against God, okay? Okay? So the first four are affecting creation and have an effect on all of us. The next two, it says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And again, that's a like technical language for people who are rebelling against God. We would be inhabitants of the new Jerusalem, for example. Um, Exodus 10, 12 to 15 gets into the, the plague of the locusts. And that's in the background of what's going on here. Um, but also in Joel, chapter 1 and 2, We have locusts that are going on. And do you remember Joel too? We read Joel 2 on, like, every Ash Wednesday. Why do we read Joel on Ash Wednesday? Because it's in the lectionary, and you're supposed to. (laughs) Do you remember what it says in Joel 2? Return to me. Yeah, repent and return to me. Okay? And, which makes sense on Ash Wednesday, right? That's Ash Wednesday, is repentance, as you enter into Lent. So these locusts, I, I, I think it continues with this theme of God is after repentance. God is after repentance. Which should be obvious, because if God was ticked off and wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth, it's not, I mean, it's God, right? I mean, and so God is after their repentance. All right. Um... You get this, uh, this really disturbing imagery that happens here. A star that falls from the sky, named Apollyon or Abaddon, given in two different languages, but it means uh, the destroyer. Um, and if everyone could turn to... So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, and I didn't until I studied Revelation, but it might kind of weird you out. So if you look at Exodus chapter 12... I don't know, if you're like me, it's like, I know the Egyptians were enslaving God's people, but it's incredibly disturbing that God would kill children. Um, And so this is going to give us a clue as to there's actually more going on than that. There's actually more going on than that. So Exodus 12, I'm going to look at verse 21 and following. I'll wait for you to get there. So this is the Passover. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for your families. Slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin. Touch the the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow, what? The destroyer to enter your house and to strike you down. So you see already that there's something going on here. It's not so simple as God is just going around um, killing people. That there's some sense in that um, the Egyptians rebelled against God and on that night, God let them have the results of their choice. The results of their choice would be the destroyer comes. What does the destroyer do? Kills. Um, in John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, but I've, uh, the, the thief comes to steal, kill, destroy. Um, one of the things that evil, and we'll get into this more in chapter 13, but evil evil can just destroy and twist and maim. That's what it can do. And so this is, um, this is what evil is doing here. So this uh, angel that falls down that's coming on the destroyer has its roots a long time ago. So this is some sort of demonic thing that's going on, and you get this sense that... Um, so if you had seen, this is one of the things that's interesting, if you had seen Mount Vesuvius erupt and the lava come out and all of the smoke, you'd probably get some idea that there's something under the earth that I don't want to mess with, right? And so that's kind of the imagery that's going on and kind of how some of the imagery of uh, this under the earth is a place of punishment um, as that kind of connects with people. So you've got this, this angel that falls and opens a shaft into the earth. And what comes out of the shaft? Smoke. What does the smoke do before it turns into locusts? Darkness. And again, darkness is pointing us towards this judgment that's coming. Um, and then these locusts come out of it. And they're not normal locusts, as you pointed out. Um, and it's, uh, these locusts come, and they come to, they come to torture people, basically. And uh, what kind of face do they have? Human. One of the most disturbing things I read in any of the commentaries was evil has a human face. And it's just unsettling, isn't it? It's very unnatural and unsettling. That's why I think it's a, it's a, this is a picture of evil. Um, cinematically, one of the best portraits of this sort of thing with evil that I've seen was in The Passion of the Christ with uh, the kind of woman with the messed up baby thing, right? The reason that weirds you out is because it's un- it's unnatural. Like it takes a good thing and it twists it. And there it's a mockery of, of Mary and her baby, Jesus, on the cross. And here you have this twisted thing. Again, evil can't create something in and of itself. It just twists and distorts something good and, and is kind of disturbing. So, these locusts are, are a picture of, of that sort of thing. When I get to the end of the sixth trumpet, I want to I kind of share a reflection from Dr. Mulholland on, on how that may... why I would argue that this sort of thing is, a, is something that's going on now. Sixth trumpet. You get this demonic army from the Euphrates. On the other side of the Euphrates River, it was a threat to both the Jewish folks and the Romans. Um, for the Jewish folks, when... Um, when Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom, and then later on, uh, a century and a half later or whatever, when uh, Babylon came and conquered the southern kingdom, they both came from beyond the Euphrates. So for the Jewish people, in their pool of images, something coming from beyond the Euphrates is, is something that's like the end of things. And not only that, but how did the Jewish people understand why was Babylon allowed to come and take them? Because they had messed up. So it was judgment. God allowed that to happen. And so beyond the Euphrates, it's this threat and it's judgment and it's this judgment that's the end of things. For the Romans, um, there was the same sort of thing. Uh, Apparently, the first battle they lost was on the other side of the Euphrates and there was always this threat of of people coming to the point where they actually had um, this expectation that at some point there would be these hordes of people coming from beyond the Euphrates and that would be the fall of the Roman Empire and the end of things. So in these pool of images for these people would be beyond the Euphrates is this sort of judgment that's kind of uh, a final judgment in a sense. And so you get this demonic army. The demonic army, again, it's uh, 200 million, which would just literally be an uncountable number. And one of the the commentaries figured out how big it would be. So if you had horsemen riding, I think if, if it was a half a mile wide, it said it would be 85 miles long to have 200 million horsemen riding, which is long. You have to go to seminary to learn profound things like that. (laughs) They're described in a grotesque manner, and again, it gets into the unnatural kind of thing. And they're sent to kill um, one-third of the humans. Again, the goal here was repentance. And uh, chapter 9, verse 21, is really kind of heartbreaking in saying that it didn't, they didn't repent. Repent. Um, I'll start with verse 20. The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which they can't, which cannot see or hear or walk. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornications or their thefts. So this call was to repentance. They did not do that. And one of the things that is... Um, Unsettling here. So you have the demons that come out, those locust demons that come out and torment them. And um, what do they do? Well, it says, if you go back here again, in, in verse 20, they did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshipping demons and idols. So you get the picture? Demons come out, and what are the demons doing to them? Torturing them. In in the fifth uh, trumpet, they wouldn't let them die. And how did the people respond? They worshipped them. And you might think, well, that's hard to believe. Unless you've ever struggled with addiction. Or something like that. Um, I know for myself... When, when I wrestled with uh, some of my own things and drinking being one of them, I would tell myself time and time again, I'm not going to do this. And it turns out when you drink, you make really bad decisions. And then I would wake up the next morning and realize I had decided to drive because I needed cigarettes. And I thought, what am I doing? But then I would do it again. And it was killing me. And yet I kept turning... Back to it. Um, if you've ever had a loved one that has wrestled with addiction, you know exactly how this goes, and it breaks your heart because it's destroying them, and they can even know it's destroying them, and they can even mean they can sit across from you and say, "I'm going to clean up," and they can mean it in the moment, but the demonic can get a strong hold on us. And if you've had a loved one go through addiction, you know it's nothing less than demonic. It really is. Well, this plays out not just with substances, but there's, you know, sometimes we have personality traits that push people away. What if you're the town gossip? And what is gossip really about? It's kind of a, an, an attempt to connect with people, isn't it? I've got the dish. Let me connect with you. But when people find out you're gossip, what's going to happen? They turn away. The very thing that you want, your behavior, or I should say it this way, the very thing you're afraid of, your behavior reinforces. And so you get this whole thing that they, the demons are torturing them, and then they turn back and worship the demons. Yeah, so you start, maybe if I compromise a little bit here with Rome, and guess what? They never let up. Yeah. And, 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 well, and then, um, as it's saying, you know, as you turn away from God, you've got these eternal consequences to that. But we keep focusing on our safety here and now. Um, the, let's see, the Calvary killed them in the sixth trumpet, but they didn't repent of their murdering. So you get this very thing that is torturing them and then they turn back to it. Um, And and this ought to be something that that challenges us. Uh, One of the commentaries wrote, bad theology leads to bad ethics, leads to bad worship, leads to immorality. So one of the things that's going on here is um, to see the demonic behind the mundane. So mundane is just kind of like everyday things of life. And I think one uh, one of the tricks that we can... Fall into One of the snares we can fall into is to think that a lot of everyday choices just are kind of whatever. They don't, they don't matter. Or um, I go to church on Sunday, I'm fine, or whatever the case may be. And uh, this is a temptation that, that they would have is, you know what? The, Caesar wants to kill me. He wants to take my head off if I don't burn some incense. I burn a little incense. It doesn't matter. I don't really believe that stuff. Or I'll go to the guild because I need a job and I'll just kind of compromise here. But I don't really believe it. I'm just doing that. And, and what John is saying is, no, these actions that you do, they have real meaning to them. And so there's actual demonic forces behind the mundane. Uh, so a couple of quotes for you. Um, the gruesome parabolic description of the demons in the fifth and sixth trumpet. Is intended to shock the true people of God out of their complacent condition as they realize what spiritual specters really lurk behind the idols. I love that sentence. As they realize what spiritual specters really lurk behind the idols. I, as you realize that there's some stuff that's out to destroy you. Oh, and it's all over. Um, in Revelation 9, and uh, Craig Koster writes, in Revelation 9, grotesque figures create a demonic parody of the created order, showing what conditions are like under the lordship of the King of the Underworld, whose name is Abaddon and Apollyon, and they mean destruction and destroyer. So you've got this again. This is a so this is a vision. You're receiving this vision, and you're in a, you're tempted to not be faithful. So you hear this vision, and the vision says. Here's this demonic leader, and this is what it's like to be under this demonic leader. It's like having these bizarre demonic locusts attack you and not let you die. Or it's like this demonic horde coming off from over the Euphrates to come and just kill you. So he's, John's not he's like being not not subtle at all. Because the, the trick is they're being lulled into complacency or lulled into sleep to to compromise into idolatry. This is why I think this book speaks so much to us. Because it's easy for us, for me and for you, to be lulled into idolatry of different kinds. And this is saying, well, no, there's actually some dangerous things behind some of the stuff you give your heart to. So what what are some parallels between their setting and ours? So rebelling against God has a, has a consequence. Again, I'll say, I'll say to people, have you, ever, have you ever committed a sin even though you knew it was wrong? Never, right? <laughs> and so what we have is not a head problem, but a heart problem. There's something wrong, something broken. In us. Are there things in your everyday life that, that, where you've got this choice between being faithful and not? are you ever tempted to be lulled into sleep on that? Things are pretty good. I think this is why it's important for us to to listen to this as something speaking to now and speaking to where they were then. It's important, instead of thinking of, if I ask, well, when are the trumpets going to happen? Then you're just thinking, when are the trumpets going to happen, trying to figure that out. But if I'm saying now that the first four trumpets are telling me that this world is not, ought not to be my home. It's not where I should get my security. And the next trumpets are telling me that there are actual demonic forces in the world that are tempted me to go that way and they're out to destroy me. All of a sudden, that is something that, that's something I need to hear, right? And so that's why I think it's important to look at this interpretation in a sense of, um, how is this speaking to our lives now? Um, So I want to read this reflection on sin. This is in regards to so you've got the the locust with scorpion tails, which is a bizarre thing. Okay, so this is the first time we succumb to temptation. We're in control. Often the experience is pleasant. We feel strong and powerful and in charge of our life. The sin, whatever it is, is merely something for us to have and to use as we see fit. The same is true the second time we do it, as well as the third, the fourth. But somewhere down the road, we cross an invisible line. Up to that point, we're really still in control of the situation. And once we move across the invisible line, however, we're no longer in control. The sin is taking control of us. At first, we don't notice the difference. Nothing seems to have changed. Gradually, however, we begin to realize that we're trapped. We begin, we begin to realize that the sting of the sin is in its tail. We begin to experience the destructive torment of sin. And the more we struggle against the sin, the stronger it becomes. We agonize over its destructive influence in our life and our relationships. We desire to be free of its deadly power. We wish we could die to its insidious control of our life, but that death eludes us. We begin to realize that there's power working through sin to destroy us. We are experiencing the first woe. I think that's a, a powerful way to kind of express what's going on with John. And I don't know about you, but that experience rings true for me. Experience rings true. All right. Look at your handout. Now, just note these patterns. We already talked about the first four as applying to kind of creation there and what's going on in the world around us. You see five and six of each are kind of connected together. The sixth of each sequence ends with, a, with an issue that needs to be addressed. The first issue, you remember, was who is able to stand, and what was the answer to that? The, in chapter 7, remember the redeemed who are in heaven, like singing... Who is able to stand? Well, chapter 7 is the victory of the faithful. And then the seventh seal is silence. With the trumpets, you get the broken up there, and then the fifth and sixth. And the problem with the sixth one is, and they didn't repent. And then you get this interlude. So the issue that's raised is them not repenting. And so the question is, I wonder if in the next couple chapters, it's going to deal with this issue of them not repenting. Which would then raise the question of, I wonder what God's plan is to draw repentance out of people. Because apparently, like, fire, hail doesn't work. Right? And so, um, even though it can get our attention and and cause the faithful to think about that, it's the people aren't repenting. So how's that going to work? And so... um, there it is. And, and I would argue that the church age is then in one through six. We're experiencing these to some level. And then seven would be the final or the end. So you can have that to, to look at here. And I want to kind of move quickly into another couple things here. Um, the angel and the scroll. We get this angel. That has the characteristics of Christ. Let's see where I'm at on this. Yeah, I'll get back to that later. Okay, so this angel comes, and the angel has the characteristics of Christ. Did you notice that as the angel comes down, he's got things that are described in chapter 1 about Jesus? Like he comes with a cloud. And and that sort of thing. And so it looks back to chapter 1. So this angel appears to be Jesus. I would say this angel would be Jesus. And so he's standing. Um, he has a rainbow. He swears to heaven. And let's kind of look at that. So there's this passage in Daniel chapter 12. Where it says... But you, Daniel, keep my words, keep the words secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be running back and forth and evil shall increase. And then it says, The man clothed in linen who was upstream raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. I heard him swear by the one who lives forever that it would be for a time, two times and a half a time. Which if you add that together, what do you get? Three and a half times. Why did they say it that way? Because. It's apocalyptic, so they do it crazy. Um, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all of these things would be accomplished. Okay, so you're waiting for that. Now if you go back to uh, chapter 10 in Revelation, you see, then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea, in verse 5, and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth is what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and he said there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled as he announces to his servants, as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now let's compare and contrast. Because you've got this, um, this time of uh, this, this very similar image that's going on here. Well, the first thing is, I guess I should have gone back to here. Uh, in verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the thunders have said and do not write it down. But here we have you, O Daniel, keep the words secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. Um, One of the things that's common in apocalyptic literature is the stuff that you need to seal and and not go into. But then it says, the man clothed in linen raised his hand, Um, and I heard him swear by the one who lives forever. And then that it's going to be a, a time, two times and a half a time, and there will be the shattering of the holy people that comes to an end, and then all these things will be accomplished. So the one in Daniel is saying, there's this time that's going to happen, and then this will be accomplished. I'm going to read Revelation 10 again. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea rose, raised his hands, swore by him who lives forever and ever, and then it goes into who created. Remember in chapter 4 we emphasize this is God, the creator. And said... You have to wait any longer? Said there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, as he announced to his servants the prophets. So there's something that's happened between Daniel and Revelation. There's something that's going on. In fact, when we get close to the seventh trumpet, there's something that's going on. But there's no more delay. And the mystery of God will be fulfilled. Well, what does that mean and how does that happen? But I, I wanted to contrast those two, or compare and contrast those two things because there's something that's happened. And the first thing we find out is this our first introduction to that, that number three and a half, which in Daniel 12, the three and a half is a number that's indicating the amount of time that the holy people are undergoing some sort of persecution. Because after that three and a half times, There'll be the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. So God's people are undergoing this persecution or something at three and a half, and that's going to come up in our, in our next part of the readings. All right. Um, did anybody notice the seven thunders and kind of wonder what was going on there? Yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? And he hears it he's going to write it down. One of the theories I've heard that I think is very interesting and kind of makes sense and goes back to this um, is what if the seven thunders were supposed to be the next set of seven here with the judgments? And one of the things where that kind of is interesting is um, in the seals, the death in Hades are given the power to kill how many people? A quarter, so it's one-fourth. When you get to the trumpets, it's over what? One-third, right? So what's next in that pattern? One-half. But oddly enough, when we get to the bowls, it's dealing with the whole of something, which would be one over one. It's almost like something's been skipped, which is kind of interesting. Also, as you know, as you go from one-quarter to one-third, is that number larger or smaller? larger and so it's again i'm going back to the it's intensifying remember as you go through these cycles it's like getting louder it's getting more it's getting bigger it's more to get your attention so i'm wondering if the seven thunders this uh the sevenfold thing and to be honest with you it kind of it's just a guess and it doesn't matter if i'm wrong because john couldn't write it down anyway so but it's just a way to kind of look at the patterns of what's going on and to kind of ask you know i wonder. I wonder where this plays in the midst of this and if this makes sense with uh, the patterns that that come next. All right. Um, Just aware of time. I want to look at this unnatural versus natural kind of thing that's going on then. And again, as we talked about Genesis 1 to 3 and we looked at um, Revelation 4, what is... In Revelation 4, what is creation's role in regards to God? What do the four creatures do? What's that? It's all worship, right? And so creation before God is this connection through worship. And then the one on the throne is praised in Revelation 4 for being the one who created all things. And so you've got this God as creator, and this right relationship that's supposed to happen between God and creation is this um, relationship of, of worship and that sort of stuff. Well, what happens in sin? When we sin and everything gets broken, who do we start to worship? in sin we start to worship ourselves or idols or kind of anything but god okay. and so we follow our own desires follow our own hearts and then and then it breaks created order and so when when creation is in line with god it acts naturally but the curse involves creation being broken and here in revelation you see creation slipping back into chaos and it's the uncreation that i talked about earlier And the implications of created order striving to exist without their creator, like how does creation exist without its creator? Well, it falls apart. And then that affects our view of the nature plagues and stuff that we just went through. But one of the things with the the locusts that's unnatural is uh, the locusts were told, what were they told in regards to the plants? Not to eat it. Instead, they were supposed to do what? Torture people. That's not normal. Right, <laughs> And so this is another, just another example of there's something unnatural going on. And this is one of the big themes throughout Revelation, but it's one of the big things, themes throughout Scripture, is that there's this sense of, um, of, of the ways of the world or the ways of sin, of, of it being unnatural. And so where it pushes us is if, if that's unnatural, then as I read Scripture and it feels Contrary to what I would do, like, for example, if I think victory is one thing and God thinks it's his son crucified and raising again, then maybe I'm the one who's not thinking right and God's ways are, th- are the natural ways that it's supposed to be of this self-giving love. So, Kulster here says that uh, Craig Colster says, the judgment depicted here then is not a direct divine punishment, but a revelation of what it would mean for God to hand over the world to other powers. So this vision that you're seeing here is is this is what it looks like if the world is handed over to other powers. Why does this matter? What What are the people tempted to do who receive this letter? They're tempted to follow those other powers. Those other powers are saying, hey, I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. And so this vision says, this is what them taking care of you looks like. It all falls apart. So, to go back to my own testimony part, the reason when I was into drinking more than I ought to was because that was the way I was dealing with things. It was not healthy and not a good choice. But I turned to that. So I made my own desires my God. And I turned to that. And what that looked like was that didn't take care of me. So this continues to be a picture of through sin we're promised. The temptations we're promised. All sorts of stuff. But the reality is idols will always let you down. And it's the real power behind idols is Abaddon or Polyam, the destroyer. And evil will always be after your destruction. Every time. All the time. And that's all it's after. All right. With three minutes to spare, um, let me go ahead and close in prayer. And uh, I'll stick around if you have any questions. Almighty God, I pray that you give us eyes to see, um, eyes to see uh, your ways and what you would have us do. And I pray that you give us eyes to see uh, the lies around us, the temptations and promises and seductions of the evil one who's out to steal our hearts and tear us down. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would belong to you and to you alone. And that you'd use this uh, scripture study to help us turn our eyes to you and to you alone. Because we know when we are in right relationship with you and um, you are creator and our savior, we know that, uh, um, that that's the way it ought to be and, and things that, that there's something powerful from that. We pray now that you send us out in the grace and peace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all very much.